Well, great to see you all uh, again, and we're in uh, that passage. Let's pray, and then we'll jump, jump into it together. Let's pray. Now unto the Lamb who sits on the throne be all glory and honour and praise. Our Father, we pray that you would call all the sinners like us to come and join in that wonderful song that Jesus is Lord, that he is Saviour. And so we pray that having sat under your word together today and again this evening, that we might leave here desiring to proclaim that song, not only with our lips, but with our lives. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Well, we've just said that we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, and we've been spending today thinking about the identity of Jesus, uh, his greatness and his glory this morning, uh, thinking about Jesus, the eternal Son, And tonight, thinking about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, uh, who came into the world to take on flesh for you and for me. Uh, It's a wonderful thing to keep thinking about Jesus' identity together. Uh, It's a significant thing to think about, and it's one that's confused Christians down through the ages, which is why two-thirds of the creed is all about Jesus. Uh, Because getting Jesus right changes everything. Getting Jesus wrong can shipwreck everything. Uh, So when we came to church tonight and Nick said to me, we have lots of songs about Jesus tonight, I said, great, that's what we want. We want lots of songs about Jesus and we want to keep coming back to the Jesus of the Bible and getting his identity right because the pressures that you and I face each and every day, um, just in normal life, are too similar to the pressures that faced first century Christians. So the danger that was there for them is the danger that is there for us. And the remedy to that danger that was there for them is the same remedy to that danger that's there for us. The writer to the Hebrews is writing to first century Christians in order that they might not Drift away. Did you pick that up at the start of chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 1. Given who Jesus is, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So that we do not drift away. The temptation in the first century, like we said this morning, was to say that Jesus is maybe one of the best people ever to live, but he's not God. Therefore, I do not need to bow my knee and submit to him. I can look at him as a great example. I can quote him as a really wise teacher, but I do not need to bow my knee and say he is Lord. That's the temptation of the first century as it is the temptation of the 21st century. Or maybe Jesus is a bit spiritual, more than you and me. Maybe he's a bit angelic, but he is not quite God. Again, so that I can listen to him, I can be inspired by him, but do I really need to bend my knee and submit my life to his rule and confess with my tongue and believe in my heart 
that he is actually God and King of the world and Lord and Saviour of me. That's the temptation. And the warning to the first century Christians and the warning to 21st century Christians is that to move away from that truth of Jesus, to drift away from the Jesus of the Scriptures, who is the Jesus of history, who is the Jesus who is enthroned in heaven at the right hand of the Father, who who has died and been raised again, the one by whom and for whom all things were made, the heir of all things, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being, that Jesus, to drift away from him, is utter disaster. That is shipwreck and death. He's the only hope of the world. And so as the writer to the Hebrews keeps pointing them back to Jesus all through this magnificent letter, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. All the way through this letter, there are warnings not to drift away from that Jesus. And that's how it happens, by the way. That's what we see all too often from our number even, people who slowly and surely drift away from Jesus. Rarely is it a decisive turn and run. Rarely is it a high-handed rejection and I'm out of here. More often than not, it is slowly but surely drifting away. It's one decision that's followed by another decision. It's one day that's followed by another day and slowly but surely drifting away like a balloon that slips out of a child's hand that seems maybe in a little bit like slow motion moving away so people can move away from Jesus, not with speed and not with determined purpose, but simply being carried away by the wind. Drifting away by the mood of our time. Drifting away by the opinions of the world. Drifting away through the influence of the influences. Drifting away by the fear of rejection. Drifting away by the seduction of sin. Drifting away by the comforts and the distractions of our lives. And so all through this letter where Jesus is on display, his beauty, his sufficiency, his supremacy, the writer keeps saying, listen to Jesus. Listen to the message that you heard at first. Don't tire of him. Don't tire of that message. Don't tire of his truth and his beauty and his goodness, but keep listening to Jesus. And all all throughout this letter, as the writer keeps saying, listen to Jesus, look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, is spattered throughout these warnings. They're drifting away, chapter 2. They're shrinking back, chapter 5. They're lazy and disinterested. They don't want to grow anymore, chapter 6. 
They're giving up church. They're not committed to meeting together. Chapter 10. A thousand little decisions that takes people away from the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of heaven, the Jesus of the truth. These Christians had once been committed. They stood with the persecuted. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their properties. But they're weary. They're weary from the world. They're weary from life. They're weary from rejection. They're weary. And you might be weary too. You might feel like you're weary of rejection or you're weary from the world or you're just plain weary. And the temptation is to make a thousand of those little decisions where the the string... (laughs) of the balloon is just loosening and loosening and will slowly drift away. And so the remedy, the writer to the Hebrews says, is to pay most careful attention to Jesus, to who he is, to what he's done and to the fact that he will do what he's promised he will do. He will do for you what he's promised he will do. Listen to Jesus. And this Jesus that we need to listen to, the Jesus we need to pay careful attention to, the Jesus we need to cling to is not distant, he's not hard to find, he's not mysteriously absent or in need of great interpretation. He doesn't need to be invented. It is the glorious Jesus we saw in chapter 1 this morning, the eternal Son, the radiance of God's glory, the heir of all things, the creator and sustainer of the universe. It's this Jesus, the one who you know died on the cross to make the full, perfect, complete, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world and now lives and reigns at at the Father's right hand in glory. That Jesus, the glorious, beautiful, sufficient and supreme Jesus who became flesh and made his dwelling among us, who's come close, he's not distant and removed. It's the Jesus who knows the reality of life in this world. He knows the weariness He knows the pressure and the persecution. He knows the limitation of your body. He knows the temptation of sin and he knows all too well from the inside the pain of suffering. He knows it. He knows you and he cares. And he walked the darkest valley so that we don't have to. And he beat death for you and so can safely lead you through. This is the Jesus who will keep you and who will lead you to glory. 
that was a longer introduction than I intended. But here we go. Chapter 2, we want to think of three things about this Jesus, the incarnate Son, that he became one of us, that he calls us into his family, that he died in our place. Hopefully it's obvious. Hopefully you're not saying, I'm sick of that Jesus. I'm bored of that message. We must pay careful attention, therefore, to this message, to this Jesus. He became one of us. He calls us into his family. He dies in our place. Have a look at verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that's not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus became like us like a human being. He took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. Quoting Psalm 8 that Michael read for us, talking about mankind, that you'll remember from our Genesis series that God made humanity to rule the world under God, to be God's representatives, to to, um, rule the world and subdue it. But we don't see that, do we? doesn't look like that we have dominion and control over the world. It looks like we're trashing the place. And it looks like it gets the upper hand. It looks chaotic and out of control. It looks like we fail to rule the world and we fail to rule our lives. And so Psalm 8 speaks of the ultimate human, the son of man, the image of God, who would step into the world, who would live out that reality in a way that you and I could never do, that he would be the ultimate human, the son of man who would not only show us what human human life was meant to be like, but he would lead a new humanity to be God's representatives, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And this is Jesus. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels and is now crowned with glory and honour. If you want to know what it means to be human, you look to Jesus. He shows you what it's like to be the perfect image bearer of God. And it's interesting to stop and think that if Jesus is the one that shows us what humanity is meant to be, Jesus is the one that shows you what a person is like and what life as a human being, an image bearer of God, is meant to be in this world. What is it that you see when you look at Jesus? The most human person ever to walk the planet who perfectly lived out God's design and purpose for humanity. What was intrinsic to his human nature? Do we hear anything about his looks or his physique? 
Do we hear anything about his skills? His marks at school? Do we hear anything about him owning his own home? Do we hear anything about him needing to be married or to have sex in order to be fully human? No, because none of those things are what make us human. None of those things are intrinsic to personhood. So what do we hear about Jesus in his human nature that shows us what, not only what God is like, but what the ultimate human being is like, what we are meant to be like? Well, we hear about his compassion. We hear about his gentleness. We hear about his prayer life, his desire to do God's will, to bring God's glory. We hear about his friendships. We hear him trusting in God's promises. We hear him caring for those around him. And possibly more than anything, we hear about his suffering. And it's his suffering and death, according to Hebrews 2, that guarantees all things will be brought under his feet. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honour. Why? Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We hear about Jesus' suffering which maybe should make us think that that suffering is part and parcel of being a person, of being human. Secondly, Jesus calls us into his family. Have a look at verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus isn't ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I'll declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I'll sing your praises. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Jesus is the source of our salvation. Right, He is the one who gives us forgiveness and eternal life. But he's also the pioneer of our salvation. He's the leader on the road. He's the only one who has walked the entire length of that road, the pioneer of our faith. He's made it to the end. And what he does is to take hold of us to lead us all the way home to glory. He is the pioneer on the road and he says to those who would follow him along that narrow road, the road of suffering, the road that goes through the cross on its way to glory, if you were to follow me on that road, says the pioneer of our our faith, I will take your hand and I'll bring you all the way home to glory. And he will do it perfectly. God's What does it say? It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. 
Perfect means that his suffering perfectly achieved the purpose for which God sent him. The suffering was complete. It was perfect. It it did what God needed it to do. And notice that part part and parcel of this family identity in Christ is that both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So here we see that suffering is going to be part and parcel of the narrow road that Jesus the pioneer leads us on, on the way to glory. And that holiness is a key to that journey. That Jesus who is perfectly holy will make those who follow him, those he is leading to heaven, Jesus will make them holy. When it comes to our family likeness, holiness is key. Holiness is part and parcel of that journey of being Jesus' people, his brothers and sisters, the children that God has given to him. And so part and parcel of that journey along this road, trusting in our pioneer and perfecter of our faith, will mean wanting to live God's way, will be wanting to be transformed into his likeness. It will mean wanting to be made holy in increasing measure. And so the Christian life that will entail suffering will mean a life of change. And not just where one or two habits are dealt with, but where every aspect of our life is shaped and changed and pruned in order to be shaped and changed into the image of the Lord Jesus. If you're trusting in this Jesus, the pioneer of our faith, who's leading you to glory, you should desire holiness. Pray for holiness. Expect change. And expect suffering. And because we're in this as a family, I think we therefore have a key role to play in encouraging holiness in each other's lives. Because we're in this as a family, we have a key role to play in spurring one another on towards love and good deeds as we're trusting and following Jesus together. A responsibility to pray with and for each other, a responsibility to encourage and to recognise growth, to give each other high fives when we see it. And at the same time, warning each other and rebuking each other, even as you see one another drift and make decisions to drift and you see them letting go of that balloon and drifting away from Jesus. We have the responsibility and the privilege 
as family to keep encouraging one another towards love and good deeds, growing in holiness to look more and more like our family image, the family likeness, our big brother Jesus, who is the pioneer of our faith and who will lead you all the way to glory. He became one of us. He calls us into his family that we would belong to him and each other. And he died in our place. Have a look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, here's the thing. Peter O'Brien helpfully reminded me accidentally this morning in Hebrews chapter 2 that when it says that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted, that it's not a hypothetical, that he's able and he does. Jesus is totally different from a modern RSVP. Can you come to this event? Yes, I can come, but I might not. Yes, Jesus can help you, and he does. He does help you when you're tempted because he's sitting at the right hand of God having made atonement for your sins. He does help you because it was when he died on the cross that God's wrath that was directed at your sin instead was directed at Jesus so that he absorbed that punishment that you deserved. He took your sin and got rid of it. He took God's wrath and he absorbed it in himself in order that he might be the risen high priest at God's right hand, the king who rules the world, who's able and willing and does help you when you're tempted. And having died for you in your place, Jesus has defeated the one who holds the power of death over you. That is the devil. And so the devil doesn't have a foot to stand on when it comes to your life. There's nothing the devil can do to rob you of your inheritance or to take away what Jesus has done. Think about the devil, right? What's his great name? He's the tempter, he's the accuser. What does he accuse you of before God? They're not worthy. They don't deserve to be your child. What's hard about that accusation is it's true. But the crucified, risen and reigning Jesus 
is able to help you when you're tempted to think that, to believe that, to live that. And he stands at God's right hand and he says, I know they're not worthy. That's why I died for them. I know they're not worthy. That's why it's grace. And the devil says, you don't belong here. You're not one of them. You're not like them. And the crucified and the risen and the reigning Jesus is able to help you and he does because he stands at God's right hand and he says, no, they do belong here because I bought them with my blood. They do belong here because I adopted them into my family. They do belong here because I am changing them day by day from one degree of glory to another. Jesus has defeated the accusation of Satan that you don't deserve his love, that you don't belong to his family, that you won't make it to glory. And the crucified, risen and reigning Jesus can and does help you because he stands in heaven and he says, no, that's not true. And as the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, he will lead you all the way to glory. The freedom that Jesus brings is the freedom from the fear of death that he has loosed forever the shackles of death that without him hold each of us down in its eternal grip but in Jesus the power and the penalty of sin is taken away at the cross where he makes atonement for our sins in order that we might live in the life and the freedom of his grace. The death-defeating and devil-crushing life and death of Jesus was one where as the perfect human and the divine image bearer, the fully God and fully man Jesus, that he could both represent us because he was one of us, but he could also make full atonement for our sins. Because in his death on the cross, it was God himself absorbing the punishment that yours and my sin deserves, turning aside God's wrath, in order that we might have all his righteousness and all of his inheritance as the better and the lasting possession. Don't get tired of this Jesus. We must, therefore, pay the most careful attention to him and to this remarkable message of salvation in order that we might not drift away 
and in order that we might call all the sinners to come join in the song that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm going to finish tonight by reading the same quote I read this morning because I enjoyed it. Let's sit under these truths again together. The triumphant Christ, having offered his life as a sacrifice at the cross and having overturned death in his resurrection, is now seated at the right hand of God, announcing, Here I am and the children God has given me. Our identity is found in him. His story is now our story. His bloodline is now our bloodline. His inheritance is now our inheritance. And his family is now our family. If we are in Christ, we have a new father, a new ancestry, a new household bustling with brothers and sisters. We have a church. The church is here to prepare one another spiritually for the changes that come with our pilgrimage to Zion. And as we go, this church is a household economy where all of us use our gifts for the sake of the mission. The fact that every person has a gift for the upbuilding of the rest of us is one more way of God signalling to us that we belong, that we are wanted, that we are loved. The family nature of the church is also why the scriptures speak of family matters, not just to families but to the whole church. The admonitions to husbands and wives, to children and parents in Ephesians 5 and 6 or Colossians 3 aren't merely written to those in the presenting situations but to entire churches to be read together. My marriage is my church's business. My fellow church members' struggles with matters unique to singleness are not theirs alone, they are mine too. We belong to one another. You are called to be a father or a mother. You are called to be a brother or a sister, whether you have any natural or legal family at all. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy as his true child in the faith. He called himself not only a father to many, but like a mother, labouring in pregnancy on behalf of the churches until Christ is formed in you. This is pivotally important for us to grasp if we are to follow the way of the cross a way in which from the cross Jesus hands a new mother to her new son as he established a church. We are to have spiritual mothers and fathers leading and nurturing others within the church. In this way, our church connects the generations. This is our identity in Christ. Through him and for him, And to him be all the glory. Amen.